Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Richard Ross. He is a photographer, researcher, and professor of art at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he's taught since 1977. Over the years, Ross has had his photographs published worldwide in publications like The New York Times, Harper's, Time Magazine, Newsweek, and Vogue. He's received grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Annie E. Casey and MacArthur Foundations, and he was awarded both Fulbright and Guggenheim Fellowships. Richard Ross is probably best known for a project that he's been working on for most of the past decade. He's been documenting the experiences of incarcerated youth throughout America. The first volume he produced in this project, called Juvenile Injustice, was published in 2012, and it features nearly 150 images made over five years visiting more than 1,000 young people confined in juvenile institutions in 31 states. He's since released another volume of photographs in the series, and traveling exhibitions of the work have been seen by U.S. Senate committees and the Supreme Court as part of a discussion of public policy affecting youth in the criminal justice system. And more recently, his work was on display at City Hall here in Bloomington. Richard Ross presented his work in person during a public lecture on the IU campus. He participated in several workshops and discussions throughout the community, and he joined Yael Cassander in the WFIU studios. Richard Ross, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. It's a, a great honor and a treat to talk with you. We were just talking off mic about the series that have defined your oeuvre, and there are a number of them. You said that your way of working is by motif, but then you will sometimes put something down, pick it back up, and return to it years later. Is that How do you even keep track of all of these ongoing themes? Each one has a different focus, but uh, my wife was an editor, and she was often working until the paper was put to bed. I was the child care in our house, and I would cook with my kids, and I had one daughter that was really specific and vegan, vegetarian, a son who was type 1 diabetic, and we had to know what carbs, protein, sugars were in it, and my wife always wanted half of that when she came home, when she came home late. So I would be always cooking on at least four of six burners and had two things in the oven, and you bring things forward and you move them back and you try to have everything somehow coordinated. But I never was one to say, okay, we'll spend the day cooking soup. And then the next day, okay, we'll spend the day making salad. And you learn to juggle things. I think that's an extremely humble and down-to-earth way of describing the way that you manage your workflow. (laughs) I enjoy that. That's great. It's pretty chaotic. And then I have uh, some really good people that have worked with me along through the years, including Rachel Glago here, who bring order to the chaos that I create and help me structure it so I could make more chaos and make more trouble. <laughs> well, let's introduce listeners who aren't familiar with your work to these series that you have 
grappled with over the course of your career. You've gone from studies of museums, collections, to somewhat cryptic studies of humans. I guess this is the the uh, series that's called Humankind, and there are all kinds of mannequins and various replicants. <laughs> You've also gone on from that to studies of pure light and just studying that which gives photography its basis, and then the work that you're most renowned for examining the, the juvenile justice system in this country. What I'm curious about, and please tell me a little bit about each particular stage if you would, but I'm also interested in that through line, how you decide to go from one topic to the other or one theme. And I'm sure it's not just desultry. I'm sure it's not just, oh, the next spirit that moves me. I'm sure there is a through line. Could you tell me about that? When you find it, let me know. <laughs> but it really stems from growing up in New York and having parents that didn't have formal education but convinced me that I could do anything I wanted. I couldn't do everything, but I could do anything. And it was a constant investigation and a curiosity. Probably the first series was that had some juice was looking at museums. And then when you reference this museum of humankind, I'm going from here to the Mather. And uh, in between, there's always a thread. You just have to figure out what the thread is. The work I've done of kids in the justice system has been examining people that are isolated from us by a plane. In a museum, it could be a transparent membrane of glass or some construct. And in an isolation room, it could be metal. It could be a slot. It could be a little window. But still, you're isolating another people. When I went back and revisited a lot of the images that I did in museology, I noticed there were a lot of life-size people represented. And they're invariably people of color. And they're exoticized. They're marginalized. They're eroticized. And I just said, this is how we learn to look at other people. So they're not confronting us. They're not endangering us. We're putting them away somehow. But there was one image at the Museum of Natural History now in New York, which is the landmark. And it's a daily life in Mandalay. And I showed it to my wife and said, what do you see? And it's a woman with her hands on her hips with basically a, a cloth bikini G-string bottom and a laurel on her head. And my wife says, well, it's a woman empowered. And I'm saying, it's nice to I'm not sure if I could say that on air, but I'm just saying genetically a young kid from elementary school is going to look at that. And if it's a boy, he's going to be aroused. And if it's a girl, I don't know what she's going to think, whether you're using another culture to exploit something about it. So now I'm continuing on with that a little bit and going to a museum in Baltimore called Great Blacks in Wax, where the director there said, we can't afford to have a 1,001 artifacts. We have to show kids in downtown Baltimore to convince them that millions of 
black people didn't die so that thousands of black kids in Baltimore could kill themselves. We showed dioramas of inviscerations and castrations and lynchings. And you start talking to people about the way the human being is portrayed becomes fascinating. And I'm doing that as well as still continuing on with the Justice series because the Justice series is quite literally, it's punishing for the kids, it's punishing for the people involved, but just the amount of work I've done is punishing for me. And sometimes I need to do other work that may be musings, may be lighter weight in some respects, but I'm entitled to that, I think. You're saying that it's emotionally taxing and burdensome. Yeah, it's brutal. Um, But it's also at the same point that it's emotionally taxing. I've told my wife, and I'll say to her, forgive me, but it's better than sex. When I am able to work my way into an institution and get into a cell that a kid is held in, and be able to sit on the floor and in a limited period of time gain that child's trust where they're telling me about their lives and they're 8, 12, 14, and they're African-American, Latino, Native American, and I'm the old white guy and they've opened up to me and they're telling me who they are and what they're about. It's nirvana. I can't describe what it's like. Being at home and binge-watching Netflix, I'm, I'm not interested in that. It has its place, believe me. But this is where I thrive. Richard Ross, in conversation with Yael Cassander. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Gaining the trust of the children is a tremendous achievement. But I can imagine it's also a great achievement to have gained the trust of these institutions. You are, well, by now you're, you're an expert in this field by virtue of having documented it for so long. At the outset, however, you were not. How did you convince these institutions, these penal institutions, that you were bona fide, that you should be admitted I mean, you were presumably not working for, as a journalist, as a photojournalist. How did you convince them that you, an artist, Richard Ross, should be admitted to these places? And what is the legality there? How are you, how are you in fact, allowed to document these, these children? At the beginning of this, I was working with a project called Architecture of Authority. And then just as a asterisk. I started speaking to one of the kids in El Paso in minimal Spanish, but I was able to communicate with the kid. And I came back from that institution and I sat down and I almost wrote my little manifesto. 
and I explained to my wife, who's very tolerant and a big support, and I had gotten a Guggenheim, which was an adult lottery ticket. So I had a year off with pay, and I could focus on research. And I said, this is meat, and other people have not done this, and I think I can do this, and I think I can publish a book about it, do an exhibition, influence legislation, interview a lot of kids, and I think I could change the world with this. And my wife said, go for it. And I was on a plane more than I was off a plane, and uh, there was a TV program with James Gardner called The Rockford Files, where he would have in his glove compartment a small printing press, and he would make up business cards for whatever he needed. And that was my attitude. Again, I could do anything. And I convinced people. And yes, sometimes I was a journalist. Sometimes I was a university professor. Sometimes I would do this or that. And I said I I wasn't going to publish it. Nobody knew what I was doing. So they didn't have the context. You could Google my name and other work came up. And I kept it secret for about the first five years. And then finally, I do a lot of work for Harper's. Rick MacArthur, who's the publisher, said, you've got the material. You have a responsibility to these kids that you've documented to help them and make this issue known. And you don't have to be a Winnebago where you hit all 50 states. You've created a longitudinal study. I'll give you as much play as you want. Lay it out. You can have all the text. I'll give you as many pages as you want, but we want to run it. Once that ran, either I was on a wave that was coming, I don't want to be falsely modest, or I helped generate that wave a little bit, and it started getting traction, and people started noticing it, and I put a face on these kids. And then I had to go and knock down the door of Annie E. Casey. They really wouldn't take my phone calls. But finally, I got there. I had a show at the National Building Museum of Architecture of Authority. And uh, my wife said, well, we're real close to Baltimore. Why don't we just go up there? I said, you can't do that to these people. But I ended up saying, I'm in D.C. I can take the train up to Baltimore tomorrow. I want to talk to Bart Lubau. And Bart said, I can give you 15 minutes at the end of the day. So I went up there for 15 minutes which turned into an hour and a half. And I said, I'm giving you these images, but you have to use it. Your data is great, but in order to be a, an advocate, you have to tell a story. You have to put a face on these kids, and that's what I've got for you. And then we move forward from there. So your photo, uh, photograph served as a supplement to the data that was already out there and helped tell that story about juvenile incarceration. They would say supplement, I would say partner, because I don't want to have one subordinate to the other. Uh, At this point, I'm trying to make the case to uh, organizations like Casey MacArthur and others that the data is important and an equal partner to the visuals. Let's go back to that moment at which point you announced to your wife that you wanted to take these photographs in order to change the system. That's some pretty tall ambition there, which is 
exciting to hear. Did you think of yourself in that progressive tradition of photographers from, say, the beginning of the 20th century, like Lewis Hine and Jacob Rice and the FSA photographers who documented the Dust Bowl? Were you thinking of yourself in that lineage? In my wildest imagination, it would be lovely. Yes, I do now. But we were friends with Marion Post Walcott. My kids would go over and swim in their pool with Lee Walcott who was one of the FSA photographers. And my hero was Leon Golub, who was a painter that worked with apartheid. And Leon kept his work more in the galleries and museums and those spaces. Lewis Hine, Jacob Reese, yeah, these are people that I adored and I really thought were magical. And to be any measure and part of that continuity is a privilege. And I think I've done a little bit of it. Their work managed to call attention to things like child labor and people living in tenements on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and really bring about change. Your work is doing the same. And part of that strategy, it seems to me, has been the way you've decided to define yourself as an artist. You've gone a different route not necessarily, as you say, like your friend Leon Golub, who tends to go the museum route. You've examined museums kind of as a subject, but I've heard you refer to the fine arts route as masturbatory, if we're allowed to say that. Do you really take a dim view of the way that fine arts traditionally are allowed to interact with civil society? I teach in an art department at UC Santa Barbara, and I have friends that talk about line form, texture, composition, and it's great. I don't denigrate their work, but I have found work that has a certain purpose. In some cases, there are colleagues that dismiss it as fad or fashion. Your work? Yeah. Oh. And they speak about it in a less respectful manner than I would normally accept, but I think they miss the boat. I think that the demands of society where you are dealing, we're on a college campus. You get kids that are really frustrated and want to have the right tools in order to change the world. And I think the arts can offer that. There was a period of time in my life where especially the work I did under the guise of gathering light, where I responded to the photographers like Annie Leibovitz, Herb Ritz. They would do images of celebrities. And I really didn't like the idea that you do an image and you touch the hem of a celebrity, therefore the image becomes significant because you were close to Whoopi Goldberg. It, it didn't appeal to me. And I felt like there was something else. And now, with this work, I continue thinking that this work is made to give people the tools. And when I go and speak, and I'll often speak at the invitation of a law school, sociology, journalism, gender and racial studies, black studies, Chicano studies, education, political science— and the last people to the party are often the art department. And I think it's, it's not my problem. It's 
something they have to deal with. It's okay. Let's talk about that, though. Why is there this contempt that I've often heard expressed, too, among some of my artist friends for work that has political ambition or that takes on social causes? Sometimes artists that I know have referred to work like that as screed or as something that is is merely, you know, using art as kind of window dressing for idea. It may be window dressing, but when I show at the Capitol Rotunda and senators and representatives walk through the space and look at the kids before they vote on the Juvenile Justice Detention Prevention Act, which they did. They renewed it after 40 years. And when Chuck Grassley, who's the senator from Iowa, and Dick Durbin, who's the senator from Illinois, are holding my book as they're voting, anybody that describes it as screed can go f*** themselves. <laughs> I hope you got your beep over there. <laughs> are we live? <laughs> I hope you can beep it. No, no, that's 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 important because so many scholars and artists and other academic and intellectual types bang their head against the wall when it comes to trying to get the work of their lives to affect policy. And what you've described right there, it must be extremely gratifying. It's gratifying, but the work is really it's not made for a federal level. It's made for a state level, which is great because I'm at IU and you can impact, help people understand how to create impact at a state level, at a local level. And when I speak, I'm also speaking to probation, detention judges. Last week I was at the National Conference of Juvenile and Family Court Judges. Uh, Next month I'm going up to the National Conference of Public Defenders. Would I rather speak to this audience, or would I rather speak to an audience of young artists in a privileged white space? They each have their place, but I won't create a hierarchy of one is more important than the other. But the world that I exist in now is really satisfying me for me. I feel like I'm the conduit for these kids. Mm-hmm. So would I rather have the art critic from Art Forum or whoever praise my work, or would I rather have the corrections officer who's interacting with a kid treat that kid with more respect and empathy on a really direct level? There's no choice for me in that one. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Richard Ross, photographer, researcher, and professor of art at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's speaking with Yael Cassander. Let's talk about the changes that 
have occurred or some of the reforms that you're seeing happen. You're talking about it on a person-to-person level with a, a guard treating a, um, an incarcerated child more humanely. What's happening also at, at a legal level? What are, you, what are you seeing? What are the Bring us up to date on what the status quo has been, the numbers that you're talking about, and any changes that... Well, there are 2.2 million incarcerated people. Uh, there's something like 70,000 incarcerated kids every night in this country. And I usually try to have data in fortune cookie form uh, because the people that I want to become the policymakers, the gatekeepers for the policymakers in the future, they're not necessarily reading 10,000 word papers. So I need Instagram information with a visual and something, you know, that what that moment on it. I really worked in the nadir of the American justice system. And it's gotten better. The numbers have gone down. But now as the numbers go down and the kids that are still incarcerated, hopefully are the ones that are more engaged in person-on-person issues rather than just pissing off an adult, which was about 88% of the population. So now states, communities, will pull resources from these institutions, although now they need the same resources in order to treat the kids that are more difficult to treat. So if your population goes from 80 to 12, ideally you've removed uh, 68 kids and given them alternatives to detention. And you need to put the money into the community. You can't just say, great, we'll lower taxes. There are places like Johnson County, Kansas, where they had a juvenile institution of about that would hold about 100 kids, and now they have about six on any given day. And are you seeing the institutions, the sort of surrounding institutions that are preventive of the kinds of problems that kids get into? So like the after-school programs, the enrichment programs that are ostensibly preempting that incarceration. Are you seeing those being built up? You'd hope so. But there's the temptation to say, well, we're tough on crime rather than we're smart on crime. And we're not creating a safer society by taking away these after-school programs. If you keep kids busy, they won't keep you busy in the really direct sense. But Santa Barbara, California, which is, everything's very counterintuitive in this world. Santa Barbara has an institution that uh, is about the same as Johnson County, Kansas, and similar demographics. We have an institution that can hold about 100 kids, and we have 88 rather than six, because the policy there is to lock kids up rather than treat them or give them alternative resources. And changing it on a local level is really difficult. You can't just tell people you should do this. You have to get them to buy into it. You have to show them the data and say this is effective and then have them be able to go out into a community and say this is effective. And then they're going to say, well, we don't support our schools enough. Why do we want to support these kids that are problematic? And the response has to be, well, you should support your schools more. One of your big themes is that the current justice system is punitive rather than therapeutic. How are you attempting to overhaul that? All I can do is speak, 
try to impact policymakers and say, if a kid is in a room like this with a mic, they're interested in music, they're interested in recording, they're interested in documenting the lives of people around them. But it's not just changing it from retribution to rehabilitation. Uh, You have to think about the whole idea of the deterrent aspect of these institutions doesn't work. If somebody says, you have to do this or else you're going to end up in juvie, the umbrella of poverty, of lack of opportunity, forces children to make bad decisions and forces adults to make bad decisions as well. So you have to help the family. It has to be multi-generational. It has to be the children and the mothers and the grandmothers. And you approach two generations and you have the longer view. Tax cuts. When I think about the federal system and the, the leadership we have, I take a deep breath and I go into a Zen space and say, it's okay, because this is not of impact. The impact is in your community. What can you do here? What can I do in Santa Barbara? What can you do in Bloomington? And it's doable. And that's really what the little message I have is you can't throw up your hands and feel overwhelmed by it. There are things that can be done. One of the most heartbreaking images that I've seen of yours that went along with text is one of the ones that's being used to promote your visit here in Bloomington, which is this image of a an 11-year-old boy with his back to the camera in a cell who's describing that he messed up in school and has been, I guess, put into a cell of some sort. I don't know what the facility was, waiting for his mom to come home. How how much are you seeing this around the country where children who have minor infractions in school add up to incarceration? I hate to use the phrase, in my day, there were not school safety officers, there were not police in school. I would be this same kid in fifth grade. I'd get in a fight with another kid. That's what kids do. Now you have the fear of bullying, which is legitimate, but you don't realize that institutions are the bullies in many of these cases. So you get two kids that get into an argument, one pushes the other. The teacher says, in my day, it used to be, you go sit there, you go sit there, stop it. And you'd respond to that. Now it's a person-on-person violation. The school safety officer is brought in. They bring the child into the principal's office. Maybe the principal's not there. And in this case, the kid took a bite out of the muffin of the principal, which was on the desk. 11-year-old fifth grader. Okay, so now he's pissed the principal off. Although she's smart and enlightened, the school safety officer is saying, we have to take this kid into custody. That's our protocol. So the kid goes into custody. It's about 10 o'clock in the morning. They take him into intake and evaluation, which is isolation. They take off his belt. They take off his shoes. They give him some milk, and they put him in a room. They have to wait for his mother, who does not have papers necessarily, and If she leaves her job, she loses her job, and the other siblings and their income is at risk. So you think about juvenile detention, and you say, you can say, oh, yeah, they're all Chicago gangbangers. And this is a kid, and often the case, where I'm sitting there and saying, you did something wrong, but it's really, don't worry, it's not you, and your mommy's going to come and get you. 
she's going to be upset, but she's really not going to be mad at you. And you shouldn't be here. And then I sent the image back to the institution and the director of the juvenile detention center, who is great, said, can we use this? I said, whatever you want. And she sent it out to all the principals in her district and said, this is no place for this child. This child should not be here. You have an issue. You solve it in your office. You solve it in your classroom. You talk to your school safety officer and you say, this is not this place for this child. And policy changed. So it's really gratifying to know that you can do that. How you could do it on a disseminate it more. I'm a small operation. I am zero budget. But the more I do, the broker I get and the happier I am. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. You're only as happy as, as the happiness you yeah. can bring. I think that must be incredibly gratifying. Congratulations to you for, for really changing some lives there. That's wonderful. Thank you. As the mother of two school-aged children. Of course, the 800-pound gorilla in the room these days is all of us living in the shadow of terror about school shootings. And anyone who's seen that film, we need to talk about Kevin, uh, if you saw that, or any of the stories that we hear that seriously amp up our terror that there is a child who's a quote-unquote bad seed or who has mental issues or who's getting beaten up at home or who's being bullied who goes nuclear and decides to shoot up the school. To play the devil's advocate, I would say, well, we've got this going on all over the place. Why don't we need school resource officers or whatever you want to call them? Why don't we need to have a no-strike policy with regard to kids who act up? I can't do it all. And gun violence is something that I can't approach because I can't alienate red states. I can convince you pretty easily about the need to reform the juvenile justice system. But the harder thing is to getting people to buy in in environments that I'm not comfortable. I have to try to figure out where we come together and talking about gun control is an area that I can't approach. I've got my kids. I've got my grandchildren at this point. I want them to be safe. You find the common ground. There is room for compromise where you say you need school safety officers. You need mental health officers. You need counselors. You need teachers that are armed with the right tools rather than the right weapons to help understand what's going on. You need the kids fed in school if they're hungry so that they're not going to be agitated and blood sugars are going to go all over the place. It's a problem of violence and resources all over the country. I can't approach everything. But you can say to school safety officers, the job you're doing is really important. Your responsibility is for my child to come home alive it would be great if they loved school and were having a great education, but all the fingers and toes of something that I gave birth to, I want my baby home. But you also have to show them 
the data that are you responding with different kids' ethnicity in a different manner than you do kids that you identify of your own race? How are you approaching them? Are you punishing them? Are you creating this violence in some cases by distorting your response unconsciously? Any racial and ethnic disparity, can you point it out to them? Yes, it's keeping them safe, but let's look at it more holistically for the whole school, the whole community. Here's a kid in front of you. They got in a fight. They're acting out. Instead of saying, I'm kicking you out of school, can you go laterally instead of shouting down at them? Can you sit on the ground with them and say, what's going on? What's the problem? What's happening at home? Yeah, maybe you need a metal detector to have them go through that. But no matter what metal detector you have, it's irrelevant. Your child isn't going to be safer. That doesn't matter. Any of these mass shootings don't necessarily, I believe, involve a kid going into the school with a gun in their backpack. It's all external and going home and getting them and being a violent predator for something that pissed the person off. It's not an easy solution, but you can get people to buy into the idea that these are kids, they're fragile, they need respect, and they need a discussion. They don't need punishment. Photographer Richard Ross. In conversation with Yael Cassander. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Richard, you obviously have a very big heart, and you have managed to gain the trust of the kids in the system. I'm curious about how that happens, happened and continues to happen. Um, you talk about sitting on the ground and, and gaining their trust, but you, a you know, privileged white man, how, how do you get through to kids who have very different backgrounds and, and um, situations? And then also I'm wondering... You know, why is it photography that you use as your conduit? Why are you not a, um, a counselor, for example? I didn't go to law school. I literally made a U-turn on the New Jersey Turnpike and didn't go to Georgetown. I chose a different path. I always thought that I was pretty good at making an argument. That's my nature. So when I'm able to use a camera to make an argument, it's a synthesis of a lot of native skills that I think I have. And I'll make an argument with these kids of why they should talk to me in a very insidious and subversive manner. And part of it is the training through the work I did of architecture of authority, where the authority comes from above. I've discovered that all these girls, this is not hyperbole, this is fact, have been assaulted sexually, emotionally, physically. Most of them have been raped. 
and a lot of the boys. So I'm white, older, male. I'm not the young male of color who has attacked them. That's the data, that it's somebody they know, it's a mother's boyfriend, it's a stepfather. So I'm so distant from that, I'm not a threat. And I knock on the door of their cells and ask permission to come in. This doesn't happen to them. I take off my shoes before I go in because often they have, to, they have their shoes off when they're in the cell as a means of counting and allow the uh, JCOs or the COs to know that there's a body inside the cell is the way they describe it. So I put myself on an equal plane with them. And actually, I become subordinate to them. I'll sit on the floor. My back is old and hurts, but I'll sit there for at least an hour with them above me, telling them that they can cut off the conversation at any time, giving them that authority. And then I just sit there with a notebook, and I'm very slow-paced. Please talk slower. I... They are teenagers, they mumble, and often if they're rural and African-American or Latino, their language is something very different than mine. So I say, please speak slowly. So I've induced this almost meditative state, and I become part of something that is very different than the authority they're used to. An old white guy sitting on the floor that's not telling them what to do, but listening to them. And getting their story to come out. Again, I enjoy it so much. And then when I photograph them, first I make them help me get up off the floor. Normally you're not allowed to touch these kids, which I understand. But I say, oh, give me a hand up. I'm so old and creaking. (laughs) And you have this moment where a hand interlocks with you and helps you up. And it's really like an E.T. moment. There's a physicality. And then I'll give them the camera and I'll say, look, I photographed thousands of kids in 35 states and I can't have your face showing. So help me create a strategy where we can do something different here. And I'll give them my camera and it's like, man, how much does this camera cost? And I'll say, it costs about the camera or the camera and the lens. And I'll say, well, the camera's about three grand and the lens is about 2,000. So it's about 5,000. And they look at it like I'm giving them magic and giving them, but camera can be replaced in there. And I'll say, take my picture. And they do. And they look at it and they say, okay, now I'll take your picture. And we become co-conspirators. And I create a space where they're given respect and attention. And these teenagers thrive. You take them out of a cell and you do the same thing for them, and they're going to be magic. Yeah, I was reminded of that collection of StoryCorps tales, listening is an act of love. Sounds like you really manifest that. You alluded to the fact that you're not legally permitted to represent their faces. They can't have their faces exposed. That parameter that I guess is imposed by law has a really interesting effect, and it's an interesting chapter in the history of portraiture, a whole series of portraits wherein the face is obscured. So that has had a really interesting aesthetic and philosophical 
implication, it seems. Uh, yeah, if I photograph you, I have a picture of you, and it's a souvenir, and it's a surrogate for you being there. And it's like the pictures of my kids or my wife that I have on my phone. But if I turn you around, then you become the surrogate for anybody. I could enter you. I could enter your persona, and I'm seeing what you see. So any of these kids that I identify, also, I presume that any one of these kids can be president of the United States, and I don't want anything to stigmatize them and come back and bite them in the future. So it's a convention that in most cases I'm legally obligated to deal with, although in some cases if they're juveniles try it as adults, that goes by the boards, then the adult world enters. But I'll also photograph them with their faces showing, and I'll get the address of their mother or aunt or grandmother. First thing I do is when I get back to California is I send the files over to Costco and get five by sevens printed, and then I'll send them to the parent or whoever is uh, the guardian and say, I met with your child, and I'm not allowed to give anything to the child because it could be commodified within an institution, and then a kid can whatever. You know, you, you can't anticipate the landmines that you're going to have go off in front of you, so you make sure you're not doing any harm. So I'll either send a set to the prison administrator and say, or the detention administrator, probation, and say, if you can use these or show these to the kids, great. If you want to use them as prompts for any class, great. But then it disadvantages the kids that I didn't interview. But I know that the mothers might enjoy them and might appreciate them. So I try to give something back physically. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure that the, the parents love that. Maybe it's a kind of art historical nerdy kind of point, but I do find it interesting that because of the parameters of, of, of what you're working with, you produce these portraits that are almost poetic by virtue of substitution. There's this literary device called metonymy. Maybe you know what I mean by that. So the idea of using a part to represent the whole. So we see that in your portraits, which is really fascinating. So instead of representing a young woman, we see her high-heeled shoe with an ankle bracelet, or we see a young person's forearm covered in tattoos. And so it's imaginatively extremely evocative. I'm not the first one to come up with this idea. I did have a little bit of background studying art. I'm not sure. It was very serendipitous. But Matthew Brady would photograph small pieces of a battlefield because how do you document the Civil War? But there would be these pieces, and the controversy was often they were staged when they were not quite documentary photographs. So I'm conscious of how do I put a face on these kids without compromising their identity and in some way harming them. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Photographer Richard Ross is our guest on this episode. 
He's speaking with Yael Cassander. I would like to go back to that fork in the road, not necessarily on the New Jersey Turnpike en route to Georgetown, but early on as a young artist, how you decided to to go on this path as a documentarian, as someone who was committed to to some of the topics that you're committed to versus more of the strictly fine arts museum, art for art's sake kind of route. I never use the phrase, that's a good question, but I really, I hate it. It's really like somebody trying to gather. Yeah, But uh, there's always an exception and this is it. And it really was after I did the whole project of gathering light, the words that I would use for my images in terms of uh, aspiration were I wanted to do work that was timeless. And that was when I was in the world of fine art. I wanted to be something more than my own mortality. And then for some reason, I came to the realization that I was mortal. It may have been, you know, one of these decade years, something. And then I said, whatever I do that I think is going to be timeless is futile. And what I want to do is be of my time. And I want to document here and now. And that was a shift in my thinking. And that started uh, the work of, I did bomb shelters around the world. Right. Waiting for the end of the world. Were these preppers? Is that the idea? People who are anticipating a nuclear apocalypse or, or is it? Well, first you'd think they were really fringe element, but then... I began that work about 15 years ago. And now you, then you would think, well, they're marginal people. Then it goes to, well, they're a minority. Then in the current world, you think, you know, they're not so (laughs) marginal after all. (laughs) They're pretty smart. But I did old bomb shelters in Moscow. uh, There was an underground city in Beijing that holds about 300,000 people. It's a bomb shelter. Switzerland, there's certainly the survivalists in Montana and Utah, but it was all over. And I felt I was a a traditional landscape photographer that just happened to be photographing 25 feet underground and looking at these architectural spaces. And I've always been interested in architecture. And um, I was an architectural photographer for the Getty for a decade. I would do commercial or other projects along the way. So not Getty images, but for the Getty Museum? for the Getty Museum and the Getty Conservation Institute. And I worked for them for quite a while where I would go to Tunisia, China, Honduras. It was a very high-paying job. They would allow me to take one of my kids with me as my assistant, as young as nine years old. And I would do that, and then I would have other things. Well, I'm also interested in this, so I'd be on the other end of the planet. And I'd say, well, I'm going to take an extra week and look at this. So it gave me resources, access, where I was able to do things. And I got more and more involved in who I was and where I was and what was going on on the planet. And that went to Architecture of Authority, and that went to Juvenile Injustice, and then Girls Injustice, and then Juvie Lifers, and then you name it. And it just keeps on rolling. 
you've mentioned several of your employers, but you didn't want to get on the um, staff of a uh, newspaper or a weekly magazine and be a more traditional photojournalist. I'm on the masthead of Harper's. You're on the masthead, yeah. As a contributing artist. I'm not sure what that is. But I mean just kind of like in the newspaper every day getting those... Kathy Ryan, who is who still is the picture editor of the Times Magazine, said you would have been a great photojournalist if you just didn't dilute yourself with fine art. Julie Saul, who runs a great photo gallery in New York, said you would have been a great artist if you didn't dilute yourself or distract yourself with photojournalism. And then I also have a career as te- as a teacher, and I also ended up, I can't describe to you how many different things I'll do during the day. But my wife, when she stopped teaching, was searching for her identity. This was about three months ago. And because she helps take care of our grandson two days, three days a week, and because she um, organizes things in the garden in our house, and we have a million people coming and going as guests all the time, I made up a card for her that says, Sissy Ross, early childhood education specialist, property manager, porn star. (laughs) We take different roles in our life, and you have different needs you need to fulfill either for yourself or for others. And you do it with a sense of humor. You do it with a sense of passion. And you don't limit yourself. And I really feel when I talk to my graduate students about what their lives are going to be, I say what you need is multiple streams of interest and multiple streams of income and never be dependent on any one to give you everything. Right. Or to be um, completely fulfilling. Yeah. One last inquiry. Your visit here in Bloomington has been co-sponsored by the city and the museum, and I think there are several other entities involved. Is this typical of the way you're working these days in terms of sharing your work and getting it out there rather than being ensconced inside a museum? Your pictures are on the hall of, uh, on the walls at City Hall. And so we're seeing them as we're going in to pay a parking ticket or something like that. Is that is that the way you like to work these days? Absolutely. I really, I've created an exhibition that is, I can pick it up. It's unmatted, unframed. It's in one crate. It's decommodified. If a kid is walking up that staircase and they put their fingers on it and they point to it and say, I've been there. I know that. I don't care. It's alive. It's important to me. And I think any institution at a university, we're also ghettoized, we're siloized, that any university institution has as its mission a nexus to bring different areas together so that they can have this discussion at a university. It's not the art academy. It's not, it's a different world. So the work really thrives with these multiple resources feeding it and it feeding multiple areas of of being able to grow. And when people come together from sociology, gender, and racial studies, from anything, that's when the work is the most successful. Yeah, and especially taking it outside of the ivory tower and bringing bringing it downtown, I think that's a very significant gesture. 
the ivory tower is good too, as, <laughs> as long as it doesn't keep itself as a pretentious, hands-off environment. I'm a, a registrar's nightmare because some of these images have been shown before, and they go up with pushpins or magnets, and a registrar will go through a condition report and say, dog-eared on top left or pinhole in bottom right. It's like, I don't care. It is used. It's going to go to some other place, and it can travel this way in a manner that it has more impact. I did a show of the bomb shelter work in Switzerland, and they said, well, it's costing us 60,000 euros to bring it over. To me, it makes things inaccessible. This work has to be accessible. Richard Ross, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thanks for bringing your work to town and for sharing this hour with me. It's been so much fun for me. I enjoy it. Thank you so much. Richard Ross, photographer, researcher, and professor of art at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's been speaking with Yael Cassander. Richard Ross was recently in Bloomington to present and discuss work from Juvenile Injustice, his ongoing project that documents the experiences of incarcerated youth throughout America. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.